Okay, so tonight we're going to be looking at Acts chapter, I'm not sorry, Luke chapter 8. And it's supposed to be a PowerPoint. It's going to come up here hopefully in just a moment. So as as you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke section that deals with a parable that's very familiar. It's one of only a couple of parables that are in all that are in that are in three gospels: Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is a very familiar parable, but it's also a very um, at times difficult parable to understand. It's the parable of the sower. Maybe you are familiar with it. Um, and okay, so can we look at eight one through fifteen? And let's go to the head to the next slide real quickly. So we're going to try to gain a better understanding of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee through this this parable as well as gain insight about the parable of the sower, and also to perceive how Luke 8, 1 to 15 explains Jesus' mission a little bit better. So if we look at the Gospel of Luke, and I know that Pastor David has talked about this when he talked about Acts uh, this summer, Luke wrote both of those books and one as a two-volume work. And in, those, in, that, in that Gospel of Luke, just like in the book of Acts, he has summary passages And some of those passages are one of those we're going to look at tonight. But in addition to that, Luke has an agenda, just like as an historian. He's writing a history for Theophilus and a presentation of of everything that we should know about Jesus that he's done research on. And so what he does is he tries to show us different things about Jesus. He makes some claims that we hear from the very start in the familiar passages that are read at Christmas time, like Luke chapter 2. He emphasizes that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Son of David, that he is the promised Messiah. And so he also now is going to emphasize in a more subtle way through his gospel that Jesus is a prophet. There was a crisis in the Jewish faith that we don't have time to really go into so much tonight, but that there was supposed to be at all times a, a spokesman for God, a prophet, and a king descended from David after, um, after promises that God had made. And there weren't those things when, when Jesus was born, or before Jesus was born for about 400 years. And so in this gospel, in a subtle way, he teaches us or tells, shows us how Jesus is a prophet. To give you an example, if you look at Acts chapter 7, verses 11 through 15 or 17, I believe, he tells a story of a woman whose son has died, who's also a widow, in the little town of Nain. And Jesus encounters her and as she's taking her son to be buried. And he, he touches the boy and raises him to life. And on the surface, it's a great miracle. Of course it is. But there's something more going on here. Because if you were to go back to 2 Kings chapter 4, you'll read a story that Elijah healed a boy who had died the, the, of a, the Shunammite woman. And if you are in Israel, you would understand that Shunam is less than a five-minute walk from Nain. And so what's happening is, is that Jesus, and Luke is pointing this out, Jesus is demonstrating that he is a prophet greater than Elijah. 
He does this multiple ways um, throughout his gospel, but this is one really particular way he does it. And he raises this boy just by touching him, whereas Elisha has to lie on the boy seven times and go through this whole process to raise him from the dead. Jesus' authority is greater than any, than any prophet that's come before. If you look at chapter 8 then, we'll see that Jesus is going to take up for himself the commission or the calling of Isaiah the prophet and apply it to himself and what he's doing. And so there is this connection between Jesus being not just uh, a son of David, not just uh, the son of God, but also a prophet, a great prophet. So let's look at uh, Luke 8, 1 through 3. After this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women, who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Jonah, the wife of Husa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. You go to the next slide. So <clears throat> this is the second tour that's being introduced that Jesus will make of the region of Galilee. Luke records in chapter 4 that Jesus began his ministry and focused on being in a little town called Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, and also um, visited synagogues throughout the region and shared the good news of the kingdom of God. In this second journey, our tour, he's going to expand that. Instead of being so much focused on synagogues, and he's going to teach out in the countryside in natural settings. He's even going to go beyond the region of the, of the Galilee and and Judea, and he's going to go into more Gentile territory, like into the region known as the Decapolis um, as well in this second journey. So he expands it. That's in the, in the third journey. He also um, will further expand it even further. And so while well, the first tour utilized the synagogue as a form to preach the good news, the second's going to be, as I said, in the, in the countryside. And like that first tour, Jesus is going to focus on proclaiming the kingdom of God. So if you go to the next slide, <clears throat> there's some things we can learn about Jesus' ministry and how he went about doing his ministry, um, not just from the scripture, but from the archaeology that's related to it. So about um, 30 years ago, there was an archaeologist who bought a, a motorcycle and decided to drive around all over Israel and catalog and discover all the ancient roads that he could find that could be dated to the first century. And one of the things he discovered was a little startling compared to what people expected. We know that in the period between the Old and New Testaments that Gentiles started cities along the coast of Israel in a typical Greco-Roman fashion which is sort of like this kind of model you see in this, in this diagram up here. You have a large city that's founded, and then it builds satellite cities or villages which are designed to support the large city by growing food, 
doing crafts, and they bring all those goods and crafts into that city, and then they're marketed and resold. Okay, so turn to the next slide. But when we started discovering the road network in the Galilee, where Jesus is doing his ministry, we discover there's not so much that kind of a pattern. Instead, we see all these diffused villages, which are, have, they do agriculture, they have specializations. Some villages specialize in pottery, some in um, producing uh, cash crops like olive oil and so forth. And yet, they are all tied together in, an, in a network with each other. Each city or village being, excuse me, about, um, about one or two miles from each other. So that you get a little network like that. And the pattern that comes up in the next slide is that you have two big Greco-Roman cities in the Galilee where Jesus does his public ministry. One of them called Sepphoris and the other called um, Tiberias. And they form sort of like a typical Greco-Roman city. But they're connected, though, to this Gentile network. I mean, to this, this Galilean network of, of uh, diffuse villages and towns. So when Jesus says, when it says, and Luke says, that he went from town and village to, an, to, to another, literally from all, the, all through all the towns and villages, he's talking about this network. And he was perfectly prepared for that because his job was to be a carpenter, as we commonly refer to it. But the word that's used for carpenter is actually the word tecton, which means general contractor. And so he would have, with his father, he would have been traveling throughout these villages, building homes, making plows, doing all sorts of uh, jobs and projects for the family income, for the family's income. So he had a, a familiarity with these routes, and he would have walked them in a regular pattern. Okay, so next slide. And as he's doing that, he's preaching, or he's actually, it says in the, in the original, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. So we should think about that. What does that mean? Jesus begins his public ministry when John the Baptist is arrested. We learn that from both Matthew and Mark. And he also has a similar message, in, at least in summary he does. So Matthew records that, Jesus, that John the Baptist preached, his primary message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And, the, and in Matthew 4, he reports that Jesus' primary message was, repent for the kingdom of God is near, or the kingdom of heaven. And so we need to think about what that, that, is, that word kingdom, of, what that message, kingdom of God, and it being near is all about. So it's also called good news. And if you respond to that kingdom, it is good news. Because you're on, become on the side of God. But it's also a crisis. And Luke points that out in a couple different places in chapter 10 and also in chapter 21. It's a crisis because you have to decide which side you are on and how you're going to respond to God's kingdom. And that response requires an immediate, well, it requires an immediate response from, from each of us and from all of us. So when Jesus is preaching, he's not in teaching and, and, and speaking and proclaiming this good news. He's also, 
He's also, if you think about it, dividing people. He's causing people to have to make a decision. Am I going to follow Jesus or am I not? And so the parable that's about to follow is going to describe that process that happens in people's lives. <clears throat> so let's go on to the next. The other thing we learn in this summary passage is that Jesus has a ministry team. He has his 12 disciples, but he also has a group of women who have been healed of all sorts of infirmities as well as uh, evil spirits. He gives us three names, Mary Magdalene. She comes from a town called Migdal or Magdala, which is located not that far from Tiberias. It was, a, a, it was on the Sea of Galilee or, or the Lake of Galilee, and it was a fish processing center. So when the fishermen caught their fish catch, they would take it to Migdal, where it would be pickled or made into fish sauce and, ex and exported all over the Roman Empire. She was probably of a working class background. Then we have Joanna, the wife of Husa, the manager of Herod's household. Her husband Husa, it's a, that's a Nabataean name. He's a foreigner. And uh, if you know Herod, this is Herod Antipas, his first wife was a Nabataean, the daughter of the king of Nabataea, which is uh, modern Jordan. And he uh, was in a high position. So she is coming from a position of wealth. And then we have Susanna, which we just don't know anything about it, as well as many other women. These women, though, finance Jesus' ministry which if you think about it in this time is astounding that women would have, would have that kind of means and ability, but also it means that they were personally impacted by an encounter with Jesus and their response was to become followers, to go along with Jesus in his ministry, to travel with him and to finance it by their own means. It also lets us know that Jesus didn't just do things laissez-faire, that he had a plan and he had a process of doing things and, uh, and, and a strategy that we ought to be paying attention to. Okay, so, verse 4, while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town to town, he told this parable. What you see in front of you is uh, a shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus told this parable that we're about to read exactly at basically this spot. It's about, uh, it's a short distance from Capernaum, about uh, half a mile or so. It was a fishing uh, center for, for the village of Capernaum. There's some complicated reasons why that's the case, but we do know that this is the place. And we know from Matthew and Mark that Jesus went out onto a boat in the lake because there was a crowd. And if you can see that there's a hillside, that if it looks sort of like um, the, the, a theater or a stadium <clears throat> side, if you go out on that lake and <clears throat> are just a little offshore, you can whisper, and the natural acoustics are such that it will amplify it, so that, the, that you can be heard um, above and beyond uh, and above the truck traffic that goes on the road that's right above it. So, 
So we are convinced that we know that this is spot archaeologically because it was, we have evidence and clear evidence that it was the fishing village for Capernaum where Peter was called that uh, Joe talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, that would be the place where that all happened. So, um, <clears throat> so he's gathering for this parable and so he, he begins the parable. Let's go to that next. So he says, Jesus says, a farmer went out to sow his seed as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil it came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. One thing we ought to note, if you look at that first verse, verse 5, in the original it uses alliteration to call attention to it, make it easier to hear, to also catch the attention of the crowd. So literally it says, using these words, a, a sower went out to sow seed, and when he was sowing the seed, some fell. It, he uses the same form of word over uh, three times in one sentence, or one, in order to catch your attention. <clears throat> but nonetheless, in order to understand this parable, we need to understand a lot about farming in the first century. Uh, a couple months ago, this summer, I had the privilege of preaching at a church in Dexter, and, and we have good friends there, and they're farmers. And so one of the, one of the weekends we were there, the, uh, the, f- the family took us out on a tour of their farm. And one of the things, that's, things that struck me was that the fa- the fa- our friend who manages this large uh, operation, was, she was very familiar with her fields. She knew the fields that had weed, where the weeds were. She knew where the rocks were. She knew where the paths were. She knew where the good soil was. She could, she could tell you, as you even just drove by it, what the qualities of each field were like, whether one was good, better than another, and what kind of be the best kind of crop for that, and what level of, of, um, of fertilizing it had had. She was totally aware of that. So if you think about it, why would any farmer take very expensive and valuable seed and throw it where they knew that it was not going to grow? Most farmers would not take expensive and valuable seed and waste it on land that's not going to produce any crop. So in order to understand this parable, we have to understand how a farmer would want to do something like that. So let's go and take a look at that. So first of all, we need to look at the at climate, how, how climate works in, in Israel. Israel is um, located basically in a border zone in between the temperate and tropical climates. So that for most of the year, it's in a tropical climate zone. But every year, it is around this time, beginning around this time, 
it, moves, it shifts to being in a temperate climb zone. And the reason why that happens is the jet stream that goes across Europe and then across the Mediterranean Sea drops southerly, in a southerly fashion so that the jet stream then brings storms across from the Balkans, Eastern Europe, across the Mediterranean, picks up lots of moisture, and basically dumps it on Israel. So that in a 13-week period, you get all, all the rain happens, all the precipitation, all the snow happens in just that period. And then once that is over, <clears throat> the jet stream is going to go upward, up to the north, and the, uh, the weatherman or woman can just take a vacation because the weather is always the same, sunny and warm. So, <clears throat> so that, that results in it's characterized by long, hot, dry season, and then uh, for like three quarters of the year, with an intensive wet season. To give you how intensive that is, in that 13 weeks, on average, the city of Jerusalem gets about 29 to 35 inches of rain. That's a lot. So, the other thing you should know is that not all of Israel is dry desert. The Galilee, where, where Jesus does his public ministry, is actually very hot and humid in the summer. It's more like Mississippi than it is like Las Cruces in its summer weather. With highs and averaging around 95 degrees and humidity about the same. So, also, there's a transition season, just like there is here, and that happens in, in March, and for one of the transitions, and also in the, in the fall, and that transition season causes a shift in the wind. Normally, the winds come across, from, across the Mediterranean, so they're going from west to east, and during that transition time, they go from east to west, so they bring dust storms off the Arabian Desert. Those who are going to Israel in March from this church should be prepared for that. Um, so, next slide. The soils. This is getting a little technical here, but let's see if I can help you understand what this means for a farmer. The technical term for soils that are around the area where Jesus told this parable, they're called vertisols or protovertisols. So, the core geology of Israel um, is made of the limestone. And so you have, the Galilee can be divided into three regions. There is um, what we call the Lower Galilee, which is a made up of mountains with U-shaped valleys that are broad. And then Upper Galilee, which is made up of ridges and mountains that are higher and have deep V-shaped valleys and all sorts of odd patterns. And then you have to the east, the far east, you have four parallel fault lines, which uh, cause the, the center between the two of them to collapse to form what's called the Jordan Rift Valley. It's a rift valley that runs from Kenya to Turkey. And it is, um, excuse me, at the Dead Sea, it's the lowest place on the face of the earth, not underwater. And at the Sea of Galilee, it's 630 feet above, I mean, below sea level. And the mountains around it, to the east and west are, are roughly about 3,000 feet above sea level. So you can see it's, it's a very varied area. 
what happened when that fault line collapsed is it caused the crust to open and the formation of volcanoes, which, which had caused ex, uh, volcanic explosions and covered the eastern part of the Sea of, Ga of uh, Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, with uh, volcanic ash and rock, a rock commonly called as basalt, or types of basalt. When that basalt erodes and mixes with eroded limestone coming off mountains and also other basalts and other um, deposits from, from, growth, from vegetation growth, it, it mixes in these valleys. It produces a soil called a vertisoil, or a protovertisoil means that it has more chunks of rock in it than it does, um, than it is, than it's smooth. <clears throat> this type of soil is, expands and contracts a great deal. Hence, the picture of the soil there is the, is the kind of soil, it's actually the soil from, a picture of soil from Galilee in the summertime. What happens is it can retain, it's mainly clay, and it can retain about 40% moisture of its, uh, and so it expands to 40% its size in the wintertime during the rainy season, and then the summer it contracts. It becomes very, very hard, <clears throat> almost as hard underneath the, this upper layer uh, as, um, as some plasters. And <clears throat> it's, all, it's alkaline and low in phosphorus, so it's good for growing cereals, but not for vegetables. It's, it's also good for growing some fruits. So what you ought to know, though, is when it gets wet, it gets sticky, and we say plastic in the sense it can be molded. It, it looks and has a texture of pizza dough, if you've ever tried to make pizza. You know how it sticks to your hands. It's, it's a little bit, it's even stickier than caliche clay. So if you've been around caliche clay, you know what that means. So the reason why that's important to understand is that it is impossible to plow once it gets thoroughly wet. So a farmer has to put the seed down and plow before the rainy season gets too, gets too deep into the rainy season. But on the other hand, has to wait until the rainy season starts because there's no way you can plow through that. So there's a short window which causes the way they farm to be different from the way we farm in our country and in in today. And that they, instead of preparing the soil ahead of time and then putting the seed down, they put the seed down and then prepare the soil. Okay, so we go to the next. So the other thing we need to understand is about types of land ownership. And uh, <clears throat> I need to move ahead here. So let's go to the next slide. Okay, so there were basically two types of, two big types of land that we need, that are important for us to understand. They, they had not, land ownership like we think of it. We have real estate, which means it's land owned by the king. They had uh, land that was owned by the state or the government, uh, which you have buy and sell the right to possess the land, almost like a, a permanent lease. And you can pass that on to your family. And uh, <clears throat> that kind of ownership is as good as long as you keep the land under cultivation. The other thing they had was communal land, which is land that was recovered 
by communities, and then they would sell a share. And it's that type of land that this parable is dealing with. In, um, we don't have time, go, go to the next slide. In <clears throat> Jeremiah 37, as well as in the Psalms, Psalm, the next slide, uh, Psalm 116 and 105 and 32, it uses a language in Hebrew that speaks of this process where what happens is, is that every year as a farmer, you go and draw lots. And that gives you the, a, a, tr a strip of land out of your share to, to, out of the communal land to, to sow. And you get usually two rows, and they're usually long instead of being in a, in a normal pot like we think in our, in our country today. So what a farmer would do, literally they'd have a rope, and the rope would be as long as their share goes. And they would literally plow, sow their seed and plow that strip. And because they did not um, use the same land every year, they didn't know its qualities. They had to sow the seed and wait and see what would happen. And so if you look in Psalm 16, <clears throat> the prayer is literally the ropes that are used for, for lining out these shares. They fell for me in a good place and did a fair portion for me. So, or... So, so the idea is, is that your strip is a good strip and you'll be able to farm in a good way. Next slide. So typical plots were small, just uh, six and a half, six acres. And to survive, a family is going to have several things going on. They're going to have their own private plot. They're going to have probably a, a communal plot and a strip. And they're also going to do some side businesses um, to get either cash crops or other side jobs that can make enough money to survive. Next. So, so after reading this parable, or saying this parable, Jesus um, is asked by his disciples what the parable means. And he said the knowledge, I'm just going to read it. His disciples asked him what this parable means. He said the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. Jesus, this is a difficult verse. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah 6 is alluding to Deuteronomy 29. And, Deuteron and Psalm 115 also alludes to Deuteronomy chapter 29. We don't have time to read this. I encourage you to read the verses 9 and 10. But what, what, is, what happens in, is Isaiah is given a commission to be a prophet when he has a, a vision of God's throne. And as that vision unfolds, God asks, who can I send to tell my people about his coming judgment? And he, in Isaiah, volunteers and gets this commission. And he talks about how the people were not going to, they're going to hear what he has to say and see what he does, but not understand it or perceive it so that they will not repent and change their way and be saved. And instead, God's judgment will come upon them. And by Jesus applying that same, those same words to us, he also <clears throat> is claiming and making the claim 
that he is a prophet like Isaiah. He has the same, he's, he's saying he has the same commission. The other thing that ought to be, inter, that ought to be thought about in Psalm 115 is that the image here of being able to see and, but not perceive and being able to hear and, and not understand become, is, uh, is an idea of what happens to people who worship idols. <clears throat> so that idolatry is a key component to what Jesus understands he is, the people that he is dealing with are, are part of. What, that raises a question for us to ponder, what was the idolatry that the people who are Jewish, who are Jesus' audience, what, were, what idolatry were they involved in? We don't have time to talk about that so much tonight, so let's go on. Go on. So Jesus says, this is, says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in, in the time of testing, they fall away. Next. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. If you look at all these types of soils, Jesus has what they, they have some things in common. <clears throat> the ones that don't produce, the plants are unable to persevere. They're unable to stay focused and and stay following Christ. They fall away for different reasons, but they all fall away. They don't persevere. And so Jesus would say that um, at the heart of this, of understanding what his ministry is about as a prophet is that you respond to his invitation to the kingdom of God <clears throat> to repent and be a part of that kingdom and then, and believe in him. And, what he's, and then you persevere in it that you might bear fruit. Wish we could go on further, but I know that I'm out of time right now, so let's just stop there. Let's pray. Alrighty, Father, thank you for this, this, this day that you've given to us, and I pray that you'd bless each and every one of us as we go our way this evening. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Thank you very much.